Last week, we answered a very simple question, a question that many in higher income countries may not know the answer to. And that question was, what is obstetric fistula? The answer to that question is the basis and foundation for what today's episode is all about. So if you haven't listened, make sure to go back a week and listen to that short episode. Today, I get to dig a little bit deeper into all things fistula with Jesse Chu. We'll talk about how Jesse discovered the devastating world of fistula, how the Fistula Foundation works with communities in need to build trust, how they direct women to the proper point of care, and how they've built a growing network of dedicated surgeons to serve these women. It's called the Fistula Foundation Treatment Network. But before we dive in, here's a little bit about Jesse. Jesse joined Fistula Foundation in 2019 and serves as the Senior Program Manager, helping to support dozens of partnerships in over 20 countries. She learned about Fistula while serving as a community health organizer with the Peace Corps in Ethiopia, where she developed and implemented programs to empower youth with reproductive health education. She holds a BA in International Studies from American University and an MBA from the Yale School of Management. Here's a question to think about while you listen. Can you guess what the cost of one fistula surgery is? Listen until the end to find out. My name is Hethel Daman, and this is The Global Health Pursuit. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. This is something that I've been wanting to talk about and feature for a while. So, I mean, I've been hearing just on LinkedIn, like I like to lurk on LinkedIn a lot. Fishula Foundation <laughs> has been like growing immensely in the last yes. like year or so, right? Yes. So we are definitely going to get into that. But first, I really want to talk about you, a featured you, and kind of get your story. Like, how how did you get involved with Fischler Foundation? Where did you get your start? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast, first of all. Of I'm really excited to get to talk about Fistula and the work of Fistula Foundation. Yeah, I was trying to think back to how this all started, and I think it has its roots in a public health class that I took in undergrad. I was an international studies major at American University and signed up for a health communication class, and that was the first time I had ever really learned about public health. Class was all about how do you, you know, use communication to influence behavior change, public health, positive public health outcomes, for example, like anti-smoking campaigns or you know, vaccination campaigns and things like that. I was just completely hooked by the opportunity to do so much good through public health. And so I decided to kind of jump all in. And the semester after that, I signed up to study abroad in Thailand, which was a specific public health course where I got to learn about the entire Thai public health system, but also learn and practice different research methodologies like focus groups and surveys and mapping to study public health. So it was really hands-on and really fascinating and just a a very special experience for me to get to learn in that way. I wish I took a public health course in 
undergrad. I didn't know about, I had no clue what public yeah. health was. I didn't even know that it was a thing back in undergrad because I was just going to go and be a doctor like everybody else yeah. in my family. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, I studied engineering, so it was all straight engineering classes. And I I don't think public health really came about until I went on my first service trip to India. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so it's so crazy how like, we just don't know so much when we're like 18 yeah. years old and yeah. then you just and you, you just come across <laughs> right and yeah. you're like you come across this class and that's what sparks your interest and i'm it's just so that's just so fascinating to me yeah and then you then you went to thailand that how was that like were you did you ever travel abroad um, before that Yeah, I had really interested in Latin America. I had studied Spanish all through high school and up until that point in college. So I had actually already done a semester abroad in Chile, which was focused on Latin American politics. I did have some comfort with, you know, travel and living and studying abroad. The Thai program was completely different from what I had done in Chile. So it was really fascinating and really special to have that hands on opportunity. I think much like you, I found public health, this was my junior year that I had taken that health communication class. So it was a little bit too late to make that my major, but being able to study abroad my senior year was a way to really immerse myself in that without making it the focus of my degree. So then I, after I graduated, I had applied to um, volunteer with the Peace Corps and I matched with a public health or a health position because of the experience that I had in Thailand. So I ended up becoming a community health educator in Ethiopia for two years. Wow. So that was what really influenced kind of the trajectory of my life. Working in Ethiopia, I primarily, I was based at a very small health center in a small community of about 2000 people, but there was a uh, high school there and just really incredible teachers based at that high school who I deeply enjoyed working with, and they were really engaged and wanted to be doing more with their students. And so with them, I ended up uh, working a lot on kind of teaching about puberty and reproductive health and um, goal setting and, you know, young youth empowerment at that high school. So that was sort of the focus of what I was doing in Ethiopia. But while I was there, I, you know, all the volunteers that were in Ethiopia would pass around flash drives with media about Ethiopia because we were also eager to learn more about the country where we were working. And one of the movies that was being passed around was called A Walk to Beautiful, which is a documentary about five fistula patients. And it follows them on their journey to the Hamlin Fistula Hospital in Addis Ababa. And so when I watched that documentary, that was where I first really learned about what fistula was. I never encountered any fistula patients while I was living in Ethiopia, but because of that film, I decided to go visit the Hamlin Fistula Hospital, and I was incredibly impressed by the work that they're doing, their facilities, their commitment to serving these women. And so that was sort of always in the back of my mind, and that was how I first was introduced to this topic. But then I decided when I came back to the U.S. to pursue an MBA because the experience in Ethiopia made me realize how valuable it was to have project management and organization management skills. 
And so I ended up getting my MBA from the Yale School of Management, which is a really socially minded business school. And I knew that I wanted to work in some kind of socially driven field. I wasn't specifically looking for a nonprofit, but that was definitely high on the list. I was also open to government or some kind of other social enterprise. And when I was job hunting after school, I found an opening at Fistula Foundation. And it just felt like kind of the threads of my life moving together. (laughs) Yeah, that it connected back to this previous experience. Wow. Everything kind of just came full circle. Yeah, completely. That is so, like, how was living in Ethiopia? How long were you there for? I was there for two years. Yeah, it was It was definitely challenging, but also really rewarding and special. I'm naturally a pretty introverted person. So a lot of why I wanted to do Peace Corps was to really push myself out of my comfort zone and, yeah, just see what I, how, what I could do in an environment yeah. that was really new for me. I you know, took intensive language classes. Part of Peace Corps, um, the first three months of the service are training. And so I had intensive language classes during that training period. um, Because when I got to my community, generally, the only people who could speak English were people who were working in the health center or in the high school. And so everyone else in like all of my neighbors only spoke the local language, which in my area was Oramifa. So it was definitely a challenge, you know, having to communicate in a language that I had only studied for three months to build friendships, to build trust, and especially trust around communicating about kind of sensitive topics like puberty and reproductive health. But yeah, it was it was really rewarding. The um, especially the teachers at high school were absolutely incredible. So motivated to care for their students. So open to new ideas. It was, yeah, really, really special. And the community, I think it was a small community, which was helpful too, because it allowed me to get to know people more easily rather than just sort of being an anonymous stranger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like an acquaintance that you see every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I think people really took care of me and kind of helped me figure out, you know, how to buy my food. How to get oh my gosh, up, the simple know? things. Yeah, all the simple things like how to yeah, take the bus, like all those things that you're is I mean it's all very challenging when language is so limited. So, what was the language again? It's called Oramifa. So, I lived in the region Oromia in Ethiopia. So, the it's a fascinating country. I think there's more than 80 different ethnicities and languages. Wow. And, one country, but that was the region that I lived in. My gosh, that's amazing. Okay. So now pivoting to Fishtel Foundation. Yes. Now the website says that it's the global leader in fistula treatment, providing more surgeries to more women than any other organization, including the U S government and the UN. That's pretty huge. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. So now The question I wanted to ask you was, when you go into a community and you notice, okay, you identify these women who have fistula, first of all, like, how are you able to identify these women first, and Mm -hmm. then bring them to the, the point to where they have the trust in getting surgery to repair Mm -hmm. this and like actually saying, okay, I'm not cursed. This is something Mm -hmm. that can be repaired. And all I have to do is just this one surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, What does that process look like? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. So I'll I'll give some background context first, which is that at Fistula Foundation, we primarily work through local partnerships. So we part our our primary mission is to fund obstetric fistula surgery. So many women who experience fistula are unable to pay for their own care. And so we fund that for them and kind of make sure that all of their needs are met in the facility, that they have, you know, all the costs of the medicine, the, you know, consumable supplies that were required for the surgery, uh, the anesthesia, the surgeon and health provider team's time, the bed, the food, anything that she needs during her time in the facility, we cover. But of course, to get her to that treatment, there are all kinds of other components that are required in the whole continuum of care. And so as you noted, one of the main ones would be community outreach to spread awareness about not only what fistula is, but also that free treatment is available and where it is available. Women can get to the right facility to get that care. And then we also will support some other pieces like training for surgeons and nurses and anesthetists and other health providers who are caring for women, you know, making sure that the equipment in the facility is up to date to provide that quality care. Some circumstances even supporting reintegration where there's opportunities to do so. Touching back to that community outreach piece, we primarily work through local organizations. So they will often, I would say, I think in most most patients are identified and referred through community health workers. Um, so these are generally people from the community who speak the language, who um, are known. And so I think that really helps with the trust, trust factor, too, which is in many cases, we also work with fistula survivors who become ambassadors for their community. So they will then, you know, I think they're the strongest reference we could possibly have to say that they experienced what these other women are experiencing, and then they were able to get free repair. We have a lot of people too who say, is it really free? Like they're kind of uh, <laughs> mistrusting. Are you guys going to take my organs? Like, <laughs> yeah. oh. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of misconceptions like that. And so, yeah, they're just a really strong reference for us to be able to find other women who are suffering and make them feel supported. And um, yeah, we have some in Kenya, especially. So in we kind of work through two strategies at Fistula Foundation. Um, the first is that we support individual hospitals and um, surgical teams that we did and that we believe in and that are doing good work. But they kind of work often just sort of on their own and they're um, accomplishing incredible things, but again, sort of on their own. And then our other strategy is that in 2014, we launched our first treatment network in Kenya. Um, And we've since replicated that in Zambia in 2017, in Democratic Republic of Congo in 2022, and then recently in Tanzania a couple months ago. The idea of the treatment network is that we're still working with partner hospitals, surgical teams, and community organizations, but we're also linking them together under the umbrella of the network. So that allows us to coordinate um, strategically about, you know, where to um, bring women for care so that For example, a woman is identified by a community health volunteer who has fistula, that community health volunteer can refer her to the closest hospital to where she lives to make it easier for her to get to that care, but also Mm. if needed for her family to visit, for her to do any follow-up that's required at that facility, um, if it's any long-term care or checkups. So it just allows us to kind of have these really strong referral systems 
between the facilities and the network. The facilities can also support each other. So um, we recently had a case in DRC where one surgeon is wanting to learn a more or just develop his skills a little bit further to be able to handle mm-hmm. more complex cases. And another surgeon at another facility in the network was able to link up with him and go visit and provide that mentorship and support. Oh, wow. So it it develops this strong team of physicians that are able to learn from each other, share best practices, share solutions for treating the women in their communities, but also kind of strengthens all of the community outreach component as well. Yeah, that's some background. So get, on the that's part. amazing. So you have like world-class kind of uh, treatment plans, you know, for each patient. That reminds me of World Telehealth Initiative, and they're able to outsource like specialty care through their mm-hmm. telehealth. And that just, yeah, it reminds me of that. In terms of like the, the availability of obstetric care, in these regions like was that a challenge or was there like were there good hospitals and physicians that you were able to source from there Mm -hmm. yeah i would say both are some incredible talented surgeons who are working on this um i think one thing that's challenging is that it's not a lucrative field to pursue because many of the patients can't cover their own treatment right and so Um, you know, many talented surgeons might pursue a specialization in another field, but or they will leave, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's definitely a major challenge for us. So many of the surgeons that we support kind of have to show that they are already invested in caring for these types of patients before we start working with them, because we want to make sure that there is like a real motivation and history of doing this type of work. There are, you know, many, we work with incredible surgeons. So we work probably with over a hundred surgeons through our network right now. And so there are definitely many talented providers out there. Um, Yeah, there's still immense need and the need is not always equal. So I think there are certain countries where there's more, we've been working for longer or other organizations have been supporting for longer. So there's more capacity there, but there are other places where it's still a major challenge. So I know that FIGO is looking at this really strategically when they select their fellows for their training program. But of course, in addition to really well-trained surgeons, you also need the entire health provider team to be well-trained. So Um, The surgical outcome is not just the result of the surgical procedure, but also of the post-operative care that the patient received in the ward. So you need really strong nursing teams um, and other doctors in the facility. We also support training not just for uh, care of fistula patients, but also for general awareness of what fistula is and what um, care treatment is available for doctors so that if a woman goes to a facility that doesn't provide fistula care, the doctor knows that they can refer her to a facility within our network where that care is available. Um, So a lot of the awareness that we do is not just for patients themselves, but it's for community members and their health teams. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A, click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full time. 
and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm. Or C, share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. Right, which then decreases the stigma in that community. Are there opportunities for, say, like OBGYNs or anybody who works in like obstetrics, like in the US or developed countries, to like come work, work with you guys? Do you guys do any like service trips? We actually don't. Um, we, because we work through local partners, we generally let them take the lead. So there might be opportunities through our partners. But also, we try to primarily focus on having local surgeons treat the patients in their communities and, you know, for the sustainability of the project, but also right. because they know best how to serve the women in their communities. We want to make sure the surgeons can communicate with the patients and that the health teams can right. provide you know, follow-up care and things like that. So <laughs> we don't really have opportunities through Fistula Foundation for volunteering with our hospitals in the field. I really love that though. I mean, you're just focusing on empowering the communities themselves. That's amazing. Wow. So in terms of the amount of growth that has happened in the last year or so, how has that changed the trajectory of Fistula Foundation? What are you focusing on now? Yeah. Well, you might have seen the really big news for us was that Mackenzie Scott gave us mm-hmm. our, the largest donation in our history of $15 million earlier Amazing. this year. Absolutely incredible. So generous and just opens a lot of doors for us. So we've been growing rapidly. We were founded actually as a volunteer organization in 2000 to support the Addis Ababa Fistula Hospital in Ethiopia. And in 2009, we realized, you know, there's so much need globally that we expanded our mission and we began supporting fistula care, not just in Ethiopia, but worldwide. Um, And that started, I think, with just five facilities in 2009. Um, And today we're supporting 77 partners, 70 of which are treatment partners and seven of which are community outreach organizations. And within those 70 partners, there's actually almost 150 facilities because some of our wow. partners work at more than one facility. We've also, since 2009, supported 70, oh, well, actually uh, 80,000 surgeries since 2009 up to date. And now with this gift where, you know, we've put together a really ambitious, but I think achievable strategic plan. And we, our goal is that in the next five years, we'll treat another 80,000 patients. So we're looking at trying to do what was hap- happened in the last 14 years and the next five years. In the next five. Um, because we have, you know, the partnerships and the relationships and we're growing, you know, we think that we can support that. So it will require a lot of new partnership development. We'll continue to support our core strategies of not just, you know, providing treatment, but also investing in training and outreach and infrastructure. But yeah, very, very excited about what's to come. Um, and with that, we're also looking at expanding this treatment network strategy that I mentioned. So we just recently launched our fourth treatment network in Tanzania a couple months ago, and we're looking at launching one in 
four more countries in the next four years. So yeah, growing really rapidly. And I think when we, those treatment networks are really incredible because we have local staff that help run those. And so one amazing thing is that that staff is just completely dedicated to thinking about fistula in that country all day, every day. And so they're able to see, you know, for example, just again, heard from our partner in DRC or our um, colleague in DRC that they had a stakeholder meeting with all of the partners in DRC, and they were able to look at a map of where the partners are currently working and where they're reaching women and able to see, you know, where are there places where there might be opportunity where women are not currently getting care and what kind of work can we do together to reach those women. So it just allows you to not just be supporting a single hospital, which is doing really amazing work, but also it's an investment in actually drawing down this immense backlog of cases and making sure that women who previously never had access to care are now getting it. So I'm very excited about that. My goodness. It's just like a growing, it's almost like exponential. That's completely, it it completely is. Because as you then, you know, have these relationships and you get to know these really incredible surgeons, many of the new partners that we bring on are referred to us by organizations that we're working with. So yeah, it's just, it completely is exponential where we're seeing this tremendous growth. You guys have a documentary that's out too. Yes. Fistula that came out recently. Our team followed a woman in Kenya from the experience of living with fistula to getting treatment in our network and then returning back home. It's about eight minutes long. I think it's up on our website if anyone wants to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Just really cool to see kind of what that experience is like for her. Yeah, I think that that would be a really nice resource for for anybody just just to kind of learn and see, you know, firsthand yeah. what actually what life looks like with Fishula and then you know what you guys are doing to like serve just one person cuz a lot of times when you when you think about oh, these big numbers of these number of people, right? Yeah. It's hard to wrap your brain around like what's actually happening. So it's like when you're following one person, you're like, okay, this is actually what's happening times however many number of people. Um, Completely. Right. And that experience of getting that documentary filmed also just, it was incredible. The team that worked on that, um, we have a a digital media manager in our office in the US um, named Morgan Walter, and she took the lead on making that documentary, but she also worked with our colleagues in Kenya and with a few other people to put that together. And I would hear stories from them about what it took to make that. And it's that reinforces the experience of what the women are living with. So for example, to get to the woman's home, they had to drive pretty far. And I think there was even a point where they had to like hike because there wasn't a road. And at one point, there was a flash flood and the car got caught in the flash flood and they were rushing to get the camera equipment out of the car before it was washed, washed away. away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just to then think about, okay, you know, that was challenging to make that documentary, but of course it was challenging for her to get to a hospital in the time of labor if those are the, that's the type of environment that she's living I in. I mean, is she know. walking there? Is yeah. she like... <laughs> Exactly, you know, and then a flash flood happens. Up is that, yeah, and so exactly, it just reinforces like why it, you know, there are these challenges that 
prevent women from accessing the medical care that they need. Wow. Yeah. So please, if you're listening to this, go to the Fish Love Foundation website. And I'll also throw a link in the show notes for you to that goes directly to the documentary. It's only eight minutes. Okay. You have eight minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse, thank you so much for coming on. I just want to ask one more thing from you. Um, How can people find you? How can people get in in touch with you? And what can people do to support Fishler Foundation? Absolutely. You can find us on our website, as you said, fishlafoundation.org. I also welcome to reach out to our team at info at fistulafoundation.org and that'll get to the right person on our team to answer your inquiries. I will say one of the things that we haven't touched on yet in our conversation that I think is incredible is that on average, fistula surgery across our global network right now costs $616 Mm. from the time that a woman, that covers all of her care from the time she arrives at the facility to the time that she leaves. And so you know, that's not nothing, but that also relative to the cost of medical care in the US is a, it's a fraction of what we would pay here. Yep. (laughs) And that will cover the health provider costs. It will cover her food, the bed, the medical supplies, everything that she needs from when she arrives to when she leaves. And so I think, you know, any amount of funds really, really support our cause. I think uh, around 82% of donations go directly to programs. And so most of the funds that uh, are given to us will go directly to making sure that women get the care that they need, supporting the you know local hospitals and local providers and delivering that care. I, I just want to say, though, mm-hmm. when you do donate, you're supporting the staff that is making this happen as well. Like, mm-hmm. that's like not for nothing, because I think that... There's a whole stigma around donations and like, oh, I want 100% of my donations to go to this cause. Well, who's running this cause? (laughs) Like, come on. (laughs) There are some costs related to building those partnerships and to monitoring the work that's happening, making sure that that's being provided as quality care. And so, yes, there are definitely some overhead costs. If there are ways to give without contributing to overhead, if that is something that you prefer, which you can find on our website. But again, most of the donations do go to programs and support just absolutely incredible providers. Like the people we work with are true heroes and the sometimes uh, because I work on the program team, I get to hear a lot of stories from our partners about what they're going mm-hmm. through. And sometimes you just can't believe what people persevere through. So we have a partner, they're called Heal Africa. They're based in Goma and Democratic Republic of Congo. And I got an email once from them that was like, we're so sorry that our grant report is late. Um, in addition to the COVID pandemic, there was an Ebola outbreak and a volcano eruption, and we had oh to my evacuate gosh. the hospital and <sighs> provide care to people in the community, and like and this and this and you're like, of course it's okay that this is delayed. How are you delivering care in these circumstances? And just many of our provide, you know, in some areas where there are political, there's a political instability, they're still going in there and they're yeah. you know, at risk to themselves to make sure that women in these difficult areas are getting the quality medical care that they need. And so 
yeah, the people we work with are just incredible heroes. And I feel very fortunate to get to be part of this organization and part of this mission. Yeah. So we do, we also like to share a lot of their stories through our emails and through our newsletter. You can find those on our website um, and you can also sign up for our uh, emails on our website. um, If you want to learn more about some of those stories, but yeah, just, we have an amazing network. I feel very fortunate. Wow. All right. Well, if you're listening in, please go to their website, learn more. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This was so good. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and for inviting me to participate in this. Of course. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There, you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you love this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.